I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens Podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Welcome back. Uh, the motherhood season continues, but we're going to kind of shift gears this week slightly because we're going to actually be talking about the women who, in lieu of our queens, were actually doing the raising of the children and kind of the interesting relationship between our, our queens, our mothers, and the people that they employ to actually do the raising of the royal children. There's a lot of people involved when it comes to raising royal children. It's really, really interesting. And I think the most lovely thing uh, from doing the research for this episode is seeing the bonds that the children um, are able to form with these people and see our fondness come out that you don't often see. Yeah, because for the most part, all of Henry's children were raised by these people and so knew them better than they knew, you know, their mothers or both of their parents. It's interesting looking at it from the perspective of our six queens because it's easy to see maybe how they would be kind of jealous of that. Like they would kind of want that maternal bond between them and their child, but it was a completely accepted, normal thing to do. It's just, it's just, they didn't really have a choice in it. It's just what happened. So last week, we really didn't get beyond the, uh, the confinement, the birthing chamber, right? We didn't really talk about what happens in the immediate aftermath. And that's really because the mother herself doesn't have a ton to do with it. Almost right away, the baby is taken from the care of its mother and put into the care of a whole team that's assembled to look after the infant. So servants, um, laundresses, all all the people like, you know, the servants that are going to be part of their royal household. Like Kate said, you know, these these children are passed off to it team team of people almost like the equivalent of a 16th century team of avengers and then the parents are free to start the process right from the beginning again and it sounds really clinical and it sounds something that was so far away from kind of maybe understanding from our own perception of maybe child rearing child bearing but this for our queens was par for the course it wasn't something that was going to surprise them or be anything that they weren't expecting. In the household ordinances of the royal court, which, like we said in the first episode, may have been written by Margaret Beaufort. A lot of people think that, so we'll we'll go with it. The ordinances actually give really kind of strict instructions for how the royal household should be organized, and that includes the household of a royal baby, the nursery. So it leaves nothing to the imagination. It tells our queens and our new mothers exactly what to expect of how their child is going to be brought up. And it includes everything from, you know, being very specific about what kind of servants should be in the household, how many there should be. I mean, there are even special people assigned to rock the cradle, uh, the rockers, as they're called, and there should be four of them in a royal nursery so that the child at no time is allowed to go unrocked. You think they did it when the baby wasn't there, just from fear? Just Maybe, yeah. It. Well, Mar- <laughs> Margaret Beaufort told me I had to, so. <laughs> We're not getting in her way. No. We're not getting... <laughs> so you can see just how kind of, yeah, structured this was. I mean, it was basically, 
we've we've talked about how the queen's household is kind of organized how it was almost like a mini court unto itself and she had her own side of court and everything so too did a royal infant even a week old royal infant had an entire household all these servants at their disposal an accountant to make sure that the funds were being spent appropriately i mean it is like a little mini royal court for a week old baby and again it sounds silly to say that stuff but it makes sense i suppose in a strange way if you're raising you you know you're producing these children to take on the role of head of state or you know become a monarch how do you do that how do you get them into that mindset well it doesn't start when they're about 15 years old you start that process of getting that headspace ready from the moment that they're born and then it's less of a shock so right away catherine of aragon and anne boleyn really had to relinquish their motherhood in the sense that we would kind of understand it today i mean at no point were they actually in charge of rearing and raising their child on a day-to-day basis i mean to the point that in most cases royal children were taken away from court when they were very young like um elizabeth for example left anne boleyn's care really when she was three months old and was sent to hatfield which is a palace outside of london the idea being that the child would be safer in the country air you know there's not many people so they wouldn't catch a disease and die. I mean, all children are so precious that we can't afford for them to get sick. Um, so they'll be safer in the country. But it really just like all of the things we're talking about with them not being involved in the day-to-day raising of their child now add on the fact that their child is being raised miles away from wherever they are. And we really just, we see that there's already a gap between mother and child. It's not necessarily something that is documented, but it must have been quite difficult for them to see. I, I mean, I, as you just said, it wasn't something that was unexpected. They knew that this was going to happen, but I think preparing for that, what's going to happen, and then living the reality of it must have been quite difficult for them. There actually is evidence that they struggled with it a little bit. So, for instance, I read that Catherine of Aragon didn't send Mary away until Mary was a lot older than most royal children would have been. I think she was a toddler by the time that she was installed into her own separate household. Like she was just, she was at court for the first couple of years of her life. So Catherine would have had more of an exposure to her. And then Anne Boleyn, even though there was probably the shock and the disappointment of Elizabeth being a girl, was very fond of Elizabeth to the point that like when Anne was hanging out in her chambers, she would have Elizabeth brought to her to just kind of lay beside her you know like on a cushion beside her just to kind of establish that bond and and really get to know her so then at the point where the children were taken away there was at least that little bit of connection that they really tried to foster but mothers are mothers parents are parents so it must have been difficult no completely and i think there's a really nice example of this so i mean i was actually reading a Tracy Borman's Private Lives of the Tudors in preparation for for, um, us talking about this today. And she mentions that in Henry's kind of possession at Whitehall, he had um, in his infantry um, little mementos that belonged to the children, um, things like that that could have been their shirts or something, you know, little things like that. And it's never been understood whose they belonged to, so whether they were the, the, the trinkets he had, if they were Elizabeth, Mary's or Edward's but I just think it's such a lovely thing that he had and kept with him 
his children weren't because again he was someone who went through this as well he was someone who was separated from his parents at, a, at an early age and had his own household established as well and that all being said the royal children definitely would have known their surrogate parents much more than their actual parents the people who were like we said in the chamber doing the day-to-day raising of the children and in the first few years of their life probably no one more than their wet nurse the woman who was in charge of feeding the children all royal children were assigned a wet nurse because the queen did not breastfeed herself it was seen as being very below her station to perform such a duty it's not something that a a queenly body should have to go through so the wet nurses were in some cases not necessarily noble women either like there wasn't necessarily a prerequisite for rank for these women it just had to be someone who was selected because they were of good character they were trustworthy they were a person who when brought into the royal household would show great you know decorum and honor and because they believed too that the kind of character and the personality of the woman was reflected in the milk that she then passed on to the baby they had to make sure that you know she was just an upstanding figure and she wasn't going to quote pollute the baby with any kind of bad humors or anything so you you see quite often that these women aren't necessarily noble women they aren't women who are just at court they're actually brought to court for these purposes i mean mary's wet nurse was a woman named catherine pole who was the wife of one of henry's gentleman ushers so not a nobleman by any means what i find so lovely with these particular examples of you know particularly wet nurses is the that that very close bond from a very early age that noble or not that um royal children were able to form with them and they're kind of lasting bonds. Edward actually had a a nurse, Sybil Penn, and he was said to have been very, very fond of her that when she carried him into a room to present him to a group of foreign um, dignitaries that were visiting, um, she carried him in and he became very, very shy and he, he clung to her and kind of nuzzled into her and wouldn't let go. Like, and I just think that's so lovely and so typical of a child um, that when they are scared that they look for that natural reassurance from someone that they trust. Yeah, it's totally natural that these kids would grow up associating the woman feeding them who they arguably spend the most time with during the day with somebody who, you know, is a, a great maternal figure. I mean, Henry VIII himself was close with his wet nurse to the point where they kept in touch and she was invited to his coronation you know it's not just a kind of somebody who feeds them when they're young and then they forget about them because they're not noble or whatever this is an incredibly important position in a person's life the amount of respect that they are then granted when the child is weaned so usually the royal children would be weaned after you know between a year and two years old And after that, the wet nurses are still around in the sense that they are either blended into the royal household at large. Henry VIII's sister Margaret, for example, made her old wet nurse one of her ladies-in-waiting later down the line when she grew up. Or they're given a very generous pension to thank them for their service. 
I mean, you would kind of have to do it because you are in such a an important position feeding the royal heir. God forbid the baby gets sick because they might look at you as the reason why. But also it takes away, it takes these women away from their own families. The reason that these women are chosen to be a wet nurse is because they have recently given birth themselves. And while they're nursing the royal baby, they're not allowed to nurse their own baby as well. It's it's all of your energy has to go to your royal charge. You're you're giving up one relationship for another, really. And it makes sense then that these women would become really important high status people afterwards. Like you say, it's almost like the very least they could do for for what they, they've given up. But this is a continuous role and a role that goes on for quite a while, especially with where the wet nurses are concerned. So it allows these women a chance to establish themselves as part of all households and to also then go on to gain favour with other people and further their own position once their, their role as a wet nurse is, is over. I thought it was interesting when researching just in general um breastfeeding and kind of the role of breastfeeding in the life of a queen you see today there's a lot of stigma against women who either can't or choose not to breastfeed their own children guess what it's not anything new this happened during the early modern period as well um we were reading an article that mentioned that uh the humanist erasmus who he wrote a lot of philosophy in the early modern period he actually wrote that a child had all the right to call their mother a quote half mother if she didn't actually feed them when they were infants so the stigma the stigma is nothing new but i think it's interesting to look at that in the life of a queen because a queen is not somebody who is expected to feed their own child in fact it's extremely frowned upon that should happen. There is a story that Anne Boleyn expressed interest in feeding Elizabeth herself. It's it's often repeated in, in some books, and I just can't imagine that being true because it's such kind of a taboo for queens to do that. A queenly body is some, uh, it's above performing normal bodily functions. And also, breastfeeding was seen as such a reliable contraceptive at the time, and a queen's number one duty is to crank out as many heirs as possible. So, I mean, Anne Boleyn is not doing anything to hinder her chances of becoming pregnant again, including breastfeeding. So it's just, it's just interesting that not only are they giving up that role to somebody else so that somebody else can establish that close bond with their child, they also have to you know, deny it of themselves because it's not something that a queenly body should do and potentially were stigmatized for it. Firstly, I find it quite funny that Erasmus has an opinion on breastfeeding because, you know, clearly the 16th century, a man's opinion is always the right I mean, one. he would though. He and, he <laughs> and, well, of course he and he Thomas More probably like went back and forth about this. They totally would. But no, I think Again, it seems very contradictory that we have this conversa these conversations when we say, oh, well, you know, A, B and C was expected of women, but not royal women. We have to be comfortable with that idea that we have these prescriptive set of rules, but then also have to live outside of them. And that while it's frustrating, because you can't then have a conversation about a female, a, a universal female experience, it makes sense because everything has its order and everything has its place. 
And this was something, too, that wasn't just exclusive to the 16th century. It was just seen as something that queens should not do. They should not lower themselves. Skipping ahead quite a few years, but you, you'll get the point. Um, Queen Victoria famously was very, you know, icked out by anything to do with babies, despite having nine of them. And when her own daughter began to breastfeed her children, she named one of the royal dairy cows after her because it was just seen as such like an, an icky thing to her. Like royal women just do not do this to themselves. I quite enjoy that. I though. mean, I feel I feel because bad for her daughter because she... her daughter is just trying to do what she wants. But yeah. <laughs> Queen Victoria is not necessarily one for a mingled metaphor. She's gonna, she's gonna smack you on the head with it. <laughs> but it just goes to show you that it's, you know, it's something that is inherently part of this royal world. Yeah. yeah and then, then, of course, as we've been saying, the natural consequence of that is, you know, the the bonding moments that you think of as happening kind of in the first year of a child's life, where they really get the chance to solidify that bond with their parents. Our queens are not getting any of that, and like we said with Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn kind of keeping their babies close at first they're kind of grasping for any anything that they can get to in these in these early years I think that's quite neatly summed up by Elizabeth I in a letter not to her wet nurse but um to her governess Cat Ashley where she effectively says we are more bound to them that bring us up than our parents. And I just think that's so simple, but so powerful and just kind of really neatly hits the nail on the head. You create this superficial distance and those children are naturally going to look for surrogate parents and that relationship that they they can't have with their own parents. So yes, they're going to to, to bond with those that are there for the, uh, that they can touch and that are tangible. to see that for the first two or so years of a royal baby's life their wet nurse is really the person who is closest to them but there was also another woman who was in the royal household who really be kind of became the center of their world and that was somebody who was known kind of interchangeably as the lady governess the lady nurse but she was the person who was in charge of the royal baby's household and it's it's what we would consider today like a nanny um it was somebody who really took on that surrogate mother role once the baby started to grow up and once the baby was weaned and again this is reflected in the household ordinances margaret beaufort specifically says that there should be this person running the household and taking charge of all of the baby's day-to-day care or rather delegating it to other people because you know the nanny is not going to be changing nappies or anything just imagine a 16th century Mary Poppins and they like you just mentioned Kate are effectively running a royal household and they are delegating that job of keeping a royal baby alive to other people so it's it's not a small job it's not an easy job it's one that our women can find quite a lot of space to assert their influence and to assert their authority that everything that she does is motivated for the good of the children. And if you're looking after particularly Edward, 
for the good of the future king and for the good of the country. And it's interesting, too, that in the case of the three children of our six queens, all of them became motherless at some point. Um, Elizabeth and Edward, when they were quite young, Mary, when she was a little bit older, but she was still in her formative years. So these women take on the double duty of not just being a mother to these children when their mother is alive, but also then really stepping into that role once these children are just grasping for any kind of maternal influence they can get. We're going to highlight a couple of the women who are the most influential to the royal children. And it's really the common theme that you, you begin to see with these women is they take on that motherly role in the sense that they are really championing the interests of these kids, these kids who have lost their mothers for one Henry-related reason or another. And two, I want to highlight a kind of interesting role between our six queens and these women, especially the relationship between Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and their the governesses for their children. Because I don't think that's spoken about a lot that interesting relationship that the queens would have had with the woman who's raising their child so yeah a lot a lot of work to do in this half but it's going to be interesting there is really good reason to believe that with princess mary catherine of aragon's only child to survive infancy that catherine actually had a lot to do with her raising um so a lot of times in a noble household and even in a royal household the king, the father, the patriarch of the family would have more of a say over who's raising the children, who's educating the children, because obviously he's, you know, he's the money, right? So he gets to make that decision. But actually, Catherine did a lot to influence Mary's household and get people into Mary's household who she wanted to be there. Case in point, when Mary was still a child, her governess was Lady Margaret Pole. Lady Margaret Pole was one of the premier noblewomen in England. She was the daughter of George, Duke of Clarence, who was the brother of Edward IV. So she had Plantagenet blood. She was seen very often sometimes as a rival claimant to Henry VIII's throne. She actually in terms of the line of secession was much closer to it than Henry Tudor, Henry VII had been. So not only was Catherine choosing somebody for her daughter's household who was unquestionably noble and royal and honorable, Catherine was always actually quite tight with Margaret. So Margaret's husband had been Arthur's uh, attendant when Catherine and Arthur were first married, and Margaret and her husband joined Arthur and Catherine's household. They were with them in Wales when Arthur died. So Catherine had known Margaret since she came to England. They had been close since then. So it, it was sort of a natural move, I think, for Catherine to choose not only somebody who was so well respected in England, but they the two women were close. I mean, who else are you going to trust with your child but one of your best friends? And I think it's nice at this point that we've got people that we can see Catherine finally starting to form bonds with for herself. And that, like you said, that she can trust with her child because she wasn't necessarily always sure what was going to happen from one day to, to the next. So it makes sense that she would seek that person that she has bonded with 
and like you said she can trust and then Anne Boleyn actually got really lucky with who ended up being Elizabeth's governess for the first few years of her life Henry actually made the appointment on behalf of both of them Uh, he was the one who chose who Elizabeth's governess would be and he chose a woman named Lady Margaret Bryan because she had served as a nursemaid to both the Princess Mary and also Henry's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. So she was somebody tried and true who Henry trusted to look after his children. And it was only natural then that she would become Elizabeth's nursemaid as well. Luckily for Anne Boleyn, who I think just like kind of Catherine saw the importance of keeping your friends close and having your child in the care of somebody that you trust because they're part of your family or a close circle Lady Margaret Bryan was the half-sister of Elizabeth Howard, Anne's mother. So she was Anne's aunt. So it's it's a little kind of tight Boleyn world around Elizabeth here. And even though it was a complete sort of accident that it happened, that, that Margaret was chosen for her previous uh, professional experience rather than any familial connection, it worked out really well for Anne. And there's evidence that they became really close um, because they communicated constantly about Elizabeth's care. Anne was constantly sending letters inquiring after the welfare of her daughter. Margaret Bryan was really respectful in keeping Anne involved in the day-to-day care and sending her updates. I mean, it got to the point that um, the famously nervous Lady Lyle was stressing about what to give Anne Boleyn for her New Year's gift um, like we said in the the New Year's special, this was like a really important time to show just how much you knew the Queen and respected the Queen. What are you going to get her for a gift? And Lady Lyle, who's in Calais in France, is stressing about it so much that the person she writes to kind of get approval and an opinion is Lady Bryan, because they spend so much time talking together that that's whose seal of approval you want. So I just think it's interesting that, you know, both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn have these women who they become very close to. And it's almost like they're the ones who are co-parenting the kid. But I think as well, like you said, that the the fortuitous nature of the appointment with Margaret Bryan would have been very calming and comforting for Anne. And especially as, you know, her position became less secure she's going to to reach for those people who are around her, ch- her her child and wanting to make sure that you know she's safe and that she's taken care of that like i said that that familiar bond is going to make Anne feel more comforted given her exit from this world definitely you see that i think when Anne Boleyn does take her exit from this world um The months following Anne Boleyn's execution were kind of a really chaotic and stressful and confusing time for her household because it became very clear in the aftermath that Anne was really the one who was paying more attention to her daughter's household. Henry kind of didn't care, especially when he fell out with Anne and Elizabeth was made illegitimate. He really just couldn't care less. It was just as long as she's alive and doesn't necessarily want for anything she's fine but we're not going to care Anne, on the other hand had been spending lavish amounts of money on elizabeth's clothing um, her bed clothes toys for her just keeping her in comfort as much as possible and when that stops when Anne dies lady brian is suddenly like okay this kid has nothing this kid is two and a half almost three years old she's growing fast she has no clothes that fit her 
and the amount of money that's being sent to her household has decreased because she's no longer a princess and this is where we see kind of the mama bear claws come out and where we really see that the governess has taken on this maternal role is lady margaret writes an awesome letter to thomas cromwell where she specifically says all of those things that i just mentioned like elizabeth has no clothes that fit her and perhaps even worse to her there's no appropriate food for the baby to eat the baby's having to eat the same food that the adults are eating they're just having to modify it so that she can physically eat it and be safe and she writes to thomas cromwell and just says this is unacceptable you need to send me money you need to tell me how i should be raising this child because i'm confused and none of us know what to do and she even goes as far as to tell cromwell that henry should really come to see his daughter because not only would he be very proud and impressed by her but that his daughter misses him snap <laughs> she's not messing around like that letter shows it's hard enough for margaret bride to wrap her head around it you know how do i educate her how do i order her house how do i order her staff what tell me what to do because i don't know what to do at this point this hasn't happened before someone so like um someone needs to tell me even more tragic then and then it just kind of shows that these these bonds are quite flimsy in the tudor world that when elizabeth is three and a half four years old her little brother edward is born and lady margaret because she just is just such a good job raising the royal children is taken away from elizabeth and transferred to edward's household and she also ends up raising edward and clearly takes great delight in edward there's a lot of cute letters that she writes to henry about what a great baby edward is um she write, wrote another letter where she told henry my lord prince is in good health and merry would to god the king and your lordship had seen him last night the minstrels played and his grace danced and played so wantonly that he could not stand still yeah Do so better. margaret bryan is is cool because she she holds the distinction of in some part for some amount of time raising all of henry's children for him she is the mother that all of his children have in common which is kind of nice even if there probably was some trauma in taking her away from first mary and then elizabeth and giving her to edward it's quite a hard thing would have maybe been a hard thing for them to wrap their head around i, do, I don't know i'm i'm purely speculating at this point but i can't imagine it would have been easy for them or maybe even for her going on this idea of the sort of the the children who are in need of a mother and an, and an advocate really i think it's interesting that in the same way that margaret bryan was really elizabeth's advocate following the execution of anne boleyn because you know the two women worked so closely together there was clearly some respect between them we don't we don't really know how much but they were close it is natural then that margaret bryan would feel the need to defend anne's child and anne probably felt really good about leaving her child in margaret bryan's hands in the same way that catherine of aragon clearly felt good about leaving mary in the hands of margaret pole because as i said before in your absence who are you going to get to raise your kid probably someone you know and trust like your best friend so when catherine's fall comes when the great matter is in full swing and especially then after catherine dies and mary's declared illegitimate and that whole roller coaster margaret pole becomes mary's like chief advocate at court between margaret pole and then the imperial ambassador chapuis 
both of them are really working overtime to make sure that Mary is okay. Like not only advocating for her status as a princess, but to make sure that she herself is okay and she's with people who support her and love her. To the point where Margaret, on several occasions, writes to Henry VIII's ministers and says, I will adopt her. I will take her into my house. You do not have to pay me anything to do it. I want to have her close to me because not only was she my charge, you know, I was her governess for so many years. I'm doing this out of respect for her mother. This is what her mother would want. And I just think it's so nice to know that these our queens had women who were close enough to them that then they advocate for their children. I think it's easy to see the job of being a queen, especially one of Henry VIII's queens, as a very lonely place to be. The fact that they have advocates and people to care for them, not just because they're being paid to or trying to win favour with any of the given queens or with Henry VIII, but because there's genuine love there and genuine um for, for the children and for, you know, in this example, a uh, particular example for, from Margaret Pohl for Catherine of Aragon. It's so important to be able to see that and showcase that. And then, of course, when we see the kids growing up, their governesses still stay with them and become very important people in their lives. Like um, Elizabeth I, for instance, her m- more famous governess is a woman who named Catherine Ashley who is becomes incredibly close to Elizabeth, is her, her champion in so many things, her chief confidant, to the point where she actually serves Elizabeth when she becomes queen. So that relationship is lifelong. And eventually, these women become not only in charge of the day-to-day kind of running of the household and nannies in that sense, but also in charge of the children's early education. And this is kind of setting up for our next episodes, which is going to be a two-parter on educating children. But the early stuff, like what maybe we think of as like nursery school, the basics, it's taught by these women. So like Lady Brian would have taught Edward his the basics. Um, Kat Ashley, Elizabeth's governess, would have taught her the basics, which for Elizabeth went far beyond the basics. So like, you know, their their role also kind of grows with the children. And the children learn to rely on them for so many other things. And um, Edward would have been taken out of a kind of female-run household when he was around like eight or nine years old. But for the first eight years of his life, he too would have been in this really kind of orchestrated by Lady Brian, whether it's his day-to-day care or it's his education. I really love this, the kind of natural evolution of the relationship. It's not a static thing that just goes, oh, you've, done, you, you, you've raised them, they're eight now, off you go, next one. They are lifelong bonds. I know right at the start we mentioned Henry VIII's wetness coming to his coronation. And then, you know, that, that letter that um, Elizabeth sent to Kat Ashley. These are incredibly important people throughout their lives you know if we take margaret bryan for an example and up until she died um she retained the title of our lady governess and and got to see edward crowned king of england so she saw him right right through uh his life and it, it must have been an incredibly 
kind of rewarding thing to be able to do. But no, as you said, their their role within the educating of the children and giving them that foundational knowledge in education is a very important thing that they they did. And in another future episode, we're going to talk about the role of stepmothers, particularly, um, I think, Anna Cleves and Catherine Parr as being maternal figures in the lives of these children. But even then, they, however much we like to play up that relationship, and I'm certainly not discounting those relationships, we really, when we're looking for who is the mother of this child, it's it's the governesses and it's the the people who are with them day to day the women who are feeding them who have that physical tangible bond with these children i mean to the point where in several letters lady margaret bryan refers to herself as edward's mother that's their relationship that they had so going forward when we we talk about all these other different kinds of maternal roles that our queens take on or that surround these children just keep in mind who's there behind the scenes doing the day-to-day raising and it's these it's these women it's Margaret Pohl, Lady Bryan, the wet nurses and like like Elizabeth herself said in that letter that's who she thinks of as raising her I like how in this episode we were able to kind of take that relationship and look at it a bit from the perspective of the queens, like especially Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, who interacted with these people in what could have been a really kind of competitive relationship, but really became a partnership in how are we raising this child to the best of our ability? And how will you continue to advocate for my child's best interests, even when I'm not here? And It was clearly such an influential relationship for both Mary and Elizabeth. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Callie and I will discuss Catherine of Aragon's interest in female education. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating and review. Long live the queens.